day starts early in the American colonies. This autumn dawn, the sun is still below the horizon, and just its first light touches the land. Across the marshy rice fields of the Carolinas, brushing the tops of the trees in the backwoods, resting lightly in the clearings, across the rolling hills of Virginia and the tidy farms of the middle colonies, lighting up the masts of the crowded ships in the harbors of New England, and curling in the surf along the beaches of the coast. Possums and owls are closing their eyes. Small night creatures are finding their holes and their burrows, relinquishing the land to the day creatures once more. Of these day creatures, consider the Jonathan Pryor family and their cow. Soft, brown-eyed, big Beatrice the cow, newly awake under the thatched roof of the barn, rustles uncomfortably in her store. Her udder is full and heavy, and she wants milking, and here it is, almost five o'clock. Inside the farmhouse, Martha Pryor, 26, haggard, brittle, has been up for more than an hour working around the huge kitchen fireplace. Her children stand shivering near the fire, dressing sleepily. Four born so far. One dead, his soul rest in peace. Another on the way, of course. As she reaches the long-armed paddle deep into the brick oven to bring out the loaves, she thinks about the day ahead. After breakfast, cleaning up. Boil the water for the wash. Hmm. Maybe rain. Sarah's looking peaky. Oh, keep away the fever, please, God. After wash, slop the hogs. Chickens come scratching. Kill one for tomorrow's pies. Cut its throat so skillful, nary a sound be heard. Bleed it and clean it and pluck it and singe it. <laughs> Fine chicken pie. Skim the top from Big Beatrice's pail and add it to the cream saved. And churn the butter. Sarah, thee shall churn the butter this morning. Yes, ma'am. Soak the beans. Pare the apples. Mix the dough. Uh, and Sarah, after the churning, we shall pare the apples for the pie. Yes, ma'am. Michael, poke up the fire a little. And Michael, this morning, put some dirt in the privy hole. Flies getting fierce. And so's the air out there. Where is thy father? Jonathan! Oh, uh, uh, here I am, Martha. It's already struck five, Jonathan. Thee sets a bad example. Why, Martha, the children are already up and shivering there, I see. Sarah, do hurry with thy dressing. I don't like to start the day with a sight of flesh turn blue. No, Martha. The children are earnest souls. They take after thee, my dear. Not likely to be ruined by their lazy father. There. There's old Crumpletail awake at last. Perhaps it's he I set the bad example for, eh? Here's thy brandy now. Drink it down and here's a slice of the loaf. Though it's almost dawn, it'll still be dark in the barn. So I've lit the lantern for thee. Mm. Well then, come along, Michael. We'll go milk Big Beatrice. It'll be thy chore soon enough now. Big lad going on nine-year-old. Michael follows his father out the door into the dawn, feeling almost a man since soon Big Beatrice will be his to tend. He walks across the barnyard and looks up into the sky, 
thinking that perhaps he has never seen a dawn so fine. Inland and south, deep in the wooded hills of the Carolinas, Sakota, Cherokee brave, stretches in the same early morning light. He has paused at the gate of the village to watch the women hurrying from one dwelling to another, carrying baskets of persimmons, nuts, beans, corn. Orange and brown and green and yellow to decorate the dawn. The dull sound of stone on corn on stone carries to him through the clear air. My sister Tumaka already pounds the corn into meal, and my youngest sister there in the square a broom as big as she. The little girls of the village have bundled twigs into brooms and are sweeping the square clean for today is the green corn ceremony. A time for renewing life. A time of cleansing. Worn pottery gathered in a big hut and later we will break it all. And at the same time old quarrels to be forgotten. Kuana and I will forget the words we spoke at the last hunting. Just as well before winter locks us up together in the village. The boys of the village have already gone to the pools in the river to fish. Sikota himself will now leave to pole his raft up the river to the place of the traps to gather the grouse and the quail. Toward the coast in the Carolina Low Country, the slave quarters of the Fairchild Plantation are almost empty. The long, thin line of black men and women is already on its way to the rice fields, and the only sounds from the shacks here are the low moans of those with the fever too sick to go to the fields. Up on the hill among the mimosas, the big white house is empty, its shutters closed against the fever season. Fairchild and his family are at their townhouse in Charleston as they are each summer until the danger is past. There, in one of the upstairs bedrooms, the two Fairchild girls are dressing with more care than usual. For I have to breakfast. Hand me that blue silk sash, Thaya. After breakfast, Mama and Papa and we and our guests will all retire to the dancing room for minuet. At the plantation, the Fairchild slaves are hard at work in the rice fields and in the woods nearby, clearing the land for more planting. Up in Providence, Rhode Island colony, it's time for the town meeting to begin. The free men of the town collect in the hall to discuss certain matters of consequence. Since no one bathes in the colonies unless he happens to fall into a river, the air in any room full of people quickly grows high. Still, the smell on this day isn't as bad as it was during the summer meetings, and there aren't quite as many flies. Order! Order! Quiet, gentlemen! Quiet, please! Now, today we're going to vote on the resolution that... <clears throat> after the first day of October next, no geese shall be let go upon the common or in the highways, nor in the water within this township. Yeah, now, 
Where, where's Rufus Gates? I, I don't see him here. Does anyone know what's happened to Rufus? Rufus Gates is sitting in his upstairs bedroom, dead drunk. Not by choice, but for purposes of anesthesia. For seven days, he has suffered from an abscessed tooth, and all the home remedies have failed. Pumpkin seed tea, or else two cloves of garlic a day, chewed carefully. This little poultice held between the gum and the inside of the lip. Never you mind what's in it. That bad tooth of his, it comes from brushing, of course. I hear he brushed his teeth several times a week, removing in this way the protective coating. The doctor, important, respected, relying more perhaps on the magic of his beard than on physiology, treats anything from scald head and itch to cancers. And now he is preparing for the extraction. From his bag, he takes the tooth puller. He notices a blood stain on it and wipes it off on his sleeve. The blood probably came off the knife he used this morning to perform an amputation. He reaches up and smooths his mustache contentedly with the tips of his fingers as he recalls the operation. Nice job, that. Nasty compound fracture. Nothing for it but to lop off that leg. Nice clean job. Far cry from a century ago when your barber did such things, eh? He did scream loud, though. Not enough brandy in him. And he turns toward the figure slumped in the chair, pleased that this patient is well soaked. It was soon one morning When the sun is Twelve o'clock noon. On the Fairchild Plantation, out in the fields, the slaves have stopped work and lie on a dry bank swatting mosquitoes. Two of them, Matty and Obadiah, are lucky to still be together after four years, lucky to have each other to complain to when the overseer is out of earshot. Jim, he looked bad this morning. Fever got him for sure. No way to die long like that. His cabin's so dark. No way to die. No way to live, neither. Here, five men got clean away over to Carter's place. Yeah. Sure do take guts. What's out there? Land we never seen. Swamps out there can suck you down. Woods full of trees that don't look like no trees at home. And wolves. That's nothing to what happens. They catch you. They burned old Luke alive. Hmm. Funny, so many tries it. More than you'd expect. You ever think about it, Opadot? Now, Maddie. What do you do I try to slip away? No, I stay here. Watering the fields with my sweat. Someday feeding the soil with my blood. Well, in the meantime... They lets us come out here full dawn, and they lets us stay out here till dark. And they lets us stop once, like we're doing now. Once in the middle of the day, 10, 15 whole minutes, maybe. Ain't enough time to ease one misery out of one bone. <laughs> and I got a body full of misery. 10 minutes in the sun, 
with our bacon. Cold bacon? Yeah. Well, that's all we got. And all we ever gonna have. Rice and bacon. Oh, I recollect they give us a little pinch of salt. Sometime last spring. I says, you look at here, Captain. You got a hard work and man. On the prior farm, Martha is bending over her heavy iron pots, her face red from the heat, her eyes watering from the smoke. Corned beef and root vegetables have been simmering all morning, and biscuits are almost ready in the brick oven. Well, here we are, hungry as hounds. Looks like rain, Martha. We may not get much more done today. As they stand around the board, Jonathan says grace. The board has a bowl of salt, a jar of apple butter, bowls of mixed mustard pickles, and horseradish. Amen. Jonathan Pryor's midday dinner is heaped on a pewter plate. The rest have wooden trenchers. They tie huge huckabuck napkins around their necks and pick up the chunks of beef with their fingers, careful not to let the grease run down their arms. The manners of the day reflect the circumstances. Few utensils frequently spoiled meat. Due east, many miles at sea, men have forgotten their hunger. A sailing ship has sighted a whale, and small boats have been lowered in pursuit. Now nothing counts, nothing is real to the men in these boats but the huge thrashing tail and their own skills. Back on the shore in the Pryor's barn, Michael Pryor and his friends are engrossed in a rainy day sport in the corn crib, a rat killing. The rats live under the pile of corn. The boys, holding clubs tightly in their hands, slowly pick the ears off the top of the pile. The pile gets lower and lower, and finally... There! There goes There's another! Got him! Look! Look at the blood in him! Nasty big brute. Watch out! There he goes! Right on the head! Look, I broke this one got me five already. Get out of the way! In Williamsburg at the tavern, men gather to sit out the rain and share a mug of rum against the wet afternoon. Farther down the coast in Charleston, though the afternoon is now half gone, the Fairchild men are still at table, left with the freedom of their pipes and unrestrained talk. But the ladies upstairs in the bedroom seek a freedom of their own. Freedom from the whalebone biting into the flesh around their waists. Just loosen that there a little more. Oh, there. I swear that is bliss. I thought I'd die. But what a lovely meal. Turtle soup, scalloped oysters, roast venison, duckling with red rice. And then that great, enormous plate of plum pudding. Well... I tried to hold back, but you just can't eat nothing at all. Now the table downstairs has been cleared except for the plates of raisins and nuts and the glasses. The men pass the crystal decanter of Madeira, and one tells a story about Gordy McLaren, a backwoods fur trader known in Charleston. His eyes are bright red and his hair standing up all over his head, and he's hugging that tree like it's his mammy. And he is hollering. Sound like a donkey being skinned alive. Seems he climbed up there the night before when he was full of drink. 
and he didn't know what he was doing. And he went to sleep right up there in that tree, and he just woke up, looked down, and didn't know the first thing about getting down. He kept hollering, my name is Gordon McClan, and I don't belong in no blasted tree. <laughs> Gordy McLaren, a small, tough, canny man, comes into Charleston every spring from the backwoods of the Carolinas. He and the other fur traders meet in town for a short, happy time of drinking and fighting and reminding themselves what white women look like. Then they disappear again along the old Indian trails. Once in the wilderness, they are men of courage and shrewd instinct. Now, deep in the wooded hills this early autumn afternoon, Gordy McLaren is just rounding the trail at the bend of the river. As he comes out of the woods at the river's edge, he stops and stands in the dappled light. He moves nothing but his eyes, more from habit than from caution. For this is friendly Cherokee country. He stands absorbing each detail of the scene. That beetle now tipped over on his back. Poor devil, near buried in that black mound of hungry ants. Mm, web broken there in the path ahead. A feather there under the sapling. Grouse? That berry crushed. What did the deed? Moccasin or hoof? On the river, fish-mouthing insects make circles in the slow-flowing water, and the afternoon sun glints across the surface. Gordon McLaren inventories his surroundings and then sniffs. Smoke laden with rich smells. He thinks a moment and then smiles. He whispers to himself. Ah, so it's the ceremony then. And me, I'm just in time. He hasn't moved. Out on the river, something glides noiselessly into the edge of his vision. A cane raft slips into sight and past him. A young Cherokee kneeling in its center with piles of dead wildfowl beside him. Sikota, gone for the birds for the feast. <laughs> I'll be having me a lovely meal tonight, I can see. Bare ribs and hominy and quail. The raft slips past and is soon out of sight. Sakota hasn't moved, hasn't looked to either side, but McLaren knows he has been seen and that the Cherokee knew he was standing there in the half-shadows. Eh, never mind. It'll give him a chance to get ready to give me a proper welcome. And he steps out of the shadow with no pretense now of caution and makes his way down the river bank to the Cherokee town close by. Across the land now, the light begins to fade. On the plantation, dusk is darkening the fields and the slaves move back across them in a thin, slow line. Their field work is done for the day, but they still have evening chores. Gotta chop some wood for the big house. I got those mules to feed. I'm so tired sometimes. I hope that old ornery mule kicked me so hard, maybe in the head. And I don't never see no more right. Never see another weary day. Matter you just talking. Yeah, I just talking. <laughs> <laughs> 
In the prior farmhouse after supper, Martha is at the spinning wheel while Jonathan sits with his pipe and toddy on the high back bench, scowling at the fire. Danged, miserable thing. Blasted, blue-tailed, blithering, smoky old Jonathan. thing. Jonathan! Go on with thy reading, Sarah. A plow man on his legs is higher than a gentle man on his knees. Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. The youth key is always bright. Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac, which either reflects the new American character or is helping to create it, is read aloud by many firesides tonight, but few read for long. Bones ache from the day's hard work, and eyes ache from the dim light once the sun has gone down. Now only one Betty lamp hangs in the prior kitchen, sputtering with bear grease. Big Beatrice, the cow, already drowses with her cud. Michael and Sarah and little Jonathan have gone to bed, and their father, still sitting on the bench, painfully pulls off one shoe and then the other. Martha, one day... Perhaps there will come a cobbler who will make a shoe to fit the right foot and a shoe to fit the left foot. The feet are different. Why shouldn't the shoes be? Uh, is thee coming to bed, woman? One by one the lamps in the land are extinguished. One by one the fires die. Gordy McLaren, wrapped in a beaver blanket, lies in Sakota's dwelling watching the last coals glow and then darken. In Charleston, the Fairchild girl lies with a wooden block under her neck to protect her hairdo and tries to sleep. When she finally dozes, she dreams of... Weevils in my hair. In the slave quarters of the plantation, Mattie and Obadiah cover their small fire with ashes and then lie together, huddled in the dark. We ain't got nothing. <laughs> nothing except bacon and rice. And each other. And they sleep. Jonathan Pryor, farmer, gives a loud snore, and Martha reaches out in her sleep to nudge him. And now all the day creatures in the land are still. One by one, the night creatures come out of their holes and burrows, but even they go their ways in silence. This has been another program in the series, Our Nation's Heritage, produced and presented as a public service by Standard Oil Company of California.